let's get into the book of Mark, though, starting out here in Mark chapter 11, verse 1 through 11. But first, let me set this up a little bit. In our last study of Mark, we followed Jesus as he neared his death in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover feast. It's been a couple weeks since we were in Mark because Pastor Riley taught a great message for us last Sunday from Philippians. But last time we were in Mark, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. The disciples, you might remember, were amazed and afraid because of Jesus' determination on that road to Jerusalem. And as they traveled with Jesus, so did the crowds, many people gathering together for that feast of Passover. And they were gathering not just to go to Jerusalem, but gathering around Jesus. Now today, as we move to chapter 11 of Mark's gospel, we are moving into the last third of the gospel of Mark. And the last third of Mark's gospel is a space that is mostly dedicated to one week in the life of Jesus, often called his Passion Week, the week that he died, the week that he was buried, and the week that he rose from the grave. In fact, this portion of Mark's gospel is so extensive that some people have called the gospel of Mark an account of Jesus' Passion Week with a long 10-chapter introduction. You know, Mark dedicated 10 chapters to the life of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the, the birth and early years of Jesus, but a full six chapters to the events surrounding the cross of Christ. Now, the lesson for all of us is obvious, isn't it? The events of Jesus' life in Jerusalem are of incredible importance and relevance in the mind of Mark and in the mind of God. Whatever Jesus did in Jerusalem was vital. As important as his life and teachings were, they would be nothing without his death. Let me say that again. As important as his life and teachings were, they would be nothing without his death and, of course, his resurrection. Jesus is the king of a kingdom, but there would be no citizens in that kingdom unless he died and rose again. He had to substitute himself for his people. So today, what we're going to do is follow Jesus on the road into Jerusalem on the Sunday before he died. And we're going to observe how he entered the city and how the disciples and crowds responded to him and we'll consider his first move once he got into the city. All right, let's read the whole text together. If you follow along in your Bibles or on the screen, it says in verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he 
sat on it. And verse 8, many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All right, the mood surrounding these events was tense in many ways. A combustible combination of various factors. Okay, first, the other Gospels tell us that Jesus wept and Jesus prayed as he entered the city. He longed for Jerusalem's salvation and was saddened by their hardness of heart that would cause them to reject him. Second, at this point, the fervor around Jesus was at an all-time high. John's gospel tells us the story that shortly before this event, Jesus raised Lazarus back to life near Jerusalem in Bethany. And right before this event, he had a supper together, a meal together, with Lazarus and those who were friends and family with Lazarus. The fervor around Jesus was so intense that the religious leaders actually determined to kill Lazarus to silence that praise that people had for Christ. But the people were excited because of what Jesus had recently done. Third, the Passover crowds jammed into Jerusalem. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, estimates that at this time there would have been about two to three million people ascending to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem at that time especially was not a big town. And so the streets, the roads, everything was swelled beyond full capacity. It's like the whole setting is a powder keg, an explosive environment that Jesus is heading into. And as Jesus neared the city, he did something that is very uncharacteristic in our journey through Mark's gospel. All throughout this book, Jesus has silenced people, told people to be quiet about the things that he's done for them. And recently, only with Bartimaeus has Jesus started to allow people to speak. He called Bartimaeus forward, invited that attention. But now, as they approach the eastern side of the city, Jesus decides to get onto a young donkey and ride into Jerusalem like a coming king. This behavior stands out to the reader of Mark's gospel. It's new, it's bizarre. It must be full of meaning. What does it show us about Jesus? What can we learn? I'm gonna give you four things today. You guys got that four things. You can write these down. Number one is this, Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. You know, one of the first lessons is the sovereign nature of Jesus in this moment. He's in control. As they approach the city, what does he do? He sends two of his disciples, we really don't know which two, though many guess Peter and John, to collect a colt. The other gospels tell us it was the colt of a donkey, and that they also took the colt's mother 
with them, probably as a way to calm down the young donkey who would have been stressed with all of the crowds and activity. Now the disciples we see there had to obtain this donkey in a very unconventional way. You know, Jesus directed them to a specific place in Bethphage where they'd find a colt that was tied up. And Jesus said, you know, just untie it, take it. And if anybody bothers you, say, the Lord has need of it and he will send it back here immediately. Don't you wish you could just do that from time to time? You know, the Lord has need of these groceries. Don't worry, he will send them back immediately. Now the disciples went into the city and they found it exactly as Jesus had said. You know, after they received permission to, to take the colt, they delivered it to Jesus and they put their cloaks on it, kind of a makeshift saddle for Jesus. Now when you read this, it really does read like a miraculous event. You know, years earlier in another episode, Jesus told Peter to go out into the Sea of Galilee one more time after fishing all night long and to cast his nets one more time. And he did, and fish awaited his nets so much so that they had to call another boat to load up all the fish that they caught. It was definitely a miraculous event. And this event reads kind of like that. It's a miracle. Jesus knew about the cult. But, you know, it's also possible that Jesus had pre-arranged for this donkey's use. This is not the first time that Jesus has been to Jerusalem. Mark's gospel and even Matthew and Luke don't focus a lot on what Jesus did in Jerusalem, but John does. Jesus went to Jerusalem every year for all the feasts with his disciples. And it's very possible that he had arranged this ahead of time, just like he'd arranged for the upper room to be reserved for the Last Supper. I don't have a problem at all with the idea that Jesus did not tap into supernatural ability, but that he just planned this event. Either way, Jesus is presented here as handling the details surrounding his death. He knows what he is doing. He knows where he is heading. And he orchestrated all the events precisely as he desired. He, like I said, is in control. And all the events that Jesus organized on this day and during this week that we're reading about are nothing compared to the way that he plotted from eternity past for mankind's salvation. You see, the Bible says in Revelation 13, 8, that from the foundation of the earth, Jesus Christ was slain. Before the inception of the galaxies, God put the cross of Christ into motion. Event after event, age after age, was organized by God to produce the first coming of the Son. God is in control. You know, Pontius Pilate, he thought he was the one in control of Jesus's destiny. So much so that he wondered why Jesus wouldn't speak to him. He says, don't you know that I have the power, the authority to crucify you? But Jesus answered him by saying, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. John 19, verse 11. You know, Peter said it this way when he preached his first sermon in Acts chapter two, verse 23. He said, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was in control just as God is in control today. 
You know, when the world shakes, when pandemics arise, and when division strikes, God is in control. He's unmoved. He's unsurprised. Jesus himself said that there would be wars and rumors of wars in Mark 13, verse 7. He said, when you hear of wars and tumults, don't be terrified, for these things must first take place, Luke 21, verse 9. And he said there would be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, Luke 21, verse 11. None of the events of our day shock Jesus. But through it all, he is churning out his kingdom. He's making disciples and shaping people into his image. He no longer collects young donkeys, but he collects people, and he uses them for his purposes. He handles the details of his kingdom and the details of our lives for his glory. Just as it says in Romans 8, verse 28, and we know that God causes everything to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now this is where there's a bit of a paradox. As much as Jesus is portrayed here as the sovereign Lord who's in control, he's also portrayed in this passage as in need. The disciples, they had to tell the donkey's owner, the Lord has need of it. And beyond the two, uh, the donkey, that Jesus needed the two disciples also to run this errand for him. That's who Jesus is. You know, he's rich, yet he became poor. He's the creator of all flesh, yet he became the son of man. He's handling the details sovereignly, but he's searching for the compliance of his people. You see, the son of God chose to put himself in a position of need. And in a sense, he still does. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus He could, if he wanted to, blast the gospel forth from an angelic choir in heaven. You know, he could, with the snap of his finger, solve the riddle of fatherlessness. Or he could reach out to those in poverty. And of course, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he does all of those things. And one day, we'll see the full resolve of all of these issues. But for the most part today, He does not interact directly, but through his people. Remember Philip in the book of Acts? You know, God saw this Ethiopian official heading home on a deserted road in the desert. And God asked Philip to go to this deserted place. He found this man reading the book of Isaiah. He didn't understand what he was reading. And so Philip climbed into the chariot and said, do you know what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless I have an interpreter? And Philip said, well, I'd be happy to play the part. And he eventually led this man to Christ and baptized him right there in the wilderness. In a sense, you could say God needed Philip. He wanted to use Philip's mind and his voice for his kingdom. And in our story today, Jesus needed the cult and he needed the obedience of his two disciples. And praise God, they volunteered themselves. Jesus, the one who is in control, had a say in the lives of his men. It's one thing to say he's sovereign, he's in control. But it's another thing to say he's in control of my life. What he says to me goes and I will behave as he desires. All right, here's the second point that I want you to see. The second thing we learn here about Jesus is, number two, Jesus is 
the promised Savior. Jesus is the promised Savior. Okay, why did Jesus want to ride into Jerusalem on this donkey in the first place? You know, he'd gone to Jerusalem many times, like I've already told you, for various feasts, all the way from his childhood. He'd traveled into Jerusalem for these holy days and holy weeks. He'd never ridden on a young donkey into Jerusalem before. Why does he choose to do this today? Why this dramatic entrance on this particular day? Well, on one hand, Jesus did this because it fulfilled a unique prophecy from the Old Testament. Catch this, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Now, Mark doesn't make mention of Zechariah 9, verse 9, in his recounting of this story, but Matthew and John make sure to mention this prophecy. This was Jesus' way of announcing to the people of Israel, I am that coming king that Zechariah, the prophet, prophesied about so many years ago. Now, this wasn't the only time that Jesus did or said something that fulfilled a long-forgotten prophecy. There were many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, many things written and spoken by the prophets of old hundreds and thousands of years earlier that Jesus fulfilled in his life and ministry. The Bible said that when the Messiah came, he would be born of a woman, Genesis 3, verse 15, and that that woman would be a virgin, Isaiah 7, verse 14, and that he would be born from that woman in Bethlehem, Micah 5, verse 2. He had to be a descendant of Abraham and also Isaac and Jacob and Judah and then also David. He would spend some of his childhood, according to Hosea 11 verse 1, in Egypt, which Jesus did. According to Jeremiah 31 verse 15, a massacre of children would happen at his birth town. A messenger, according to Isaiah 40, verse 3 and 5, would cry out in the wilderness as a way to prepare people for his coming. He would be rejected by his own people, according to Isaiah 53, verse 3. He would be a Moses-like figure who would lead his people out of slavery, according to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Elijah, according to the last prophecy of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, would come before the day of the Lord. And of course, John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy because he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He would be known, according to Matthew 2.23, as a Nazarene. He would do much of his work in Galilee, according to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. And when he taught, he would teach with parables, according to Isaiah 6, verse 9 through 10, and Psalm 78, verse 2 through 4. He would serve the brokenhearted, according to Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. Little children would praise his name, according to Psalm 8, verse 2. He would be betrayed by a friend, according to Zechariah 11. And the money that was spent to betray him would eventually buy a field, according to that same prophecy. He would be falsely accused, but he would be silent before his accusers, according to Isaiah 53, verse 7. 
He would be crucified next to criminals, according to Isaiah 53, verse 12. And while he was on the cross, they would offer him vinegar to drink while there, according to Psalm 69, verse 21. According to Psalm 22, his hands and his feet would be pierced in his death. According to that same psalm, he would be mocked and ridiculed, and soldiers would gamble for his garments. His bones, according to Exodus 12, 46, and Psalm 34, verse 20, would not be broken while he was on the cross, and they would pierce his side, according to Zechariah 12, verse 10. And when they took him and buried him, they would place him in a rich man's tomb, according to Isaiah 53, verse 9. And of course, according to Psalm 16, verse 10, he would rise from the dead. You see, all 32 of those Old Testament prophecies I just mentioned, man, they sound like Jesus to me. He was foretold from of old. The sure prophetic witness of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. And that means that we can trust him. But let's look at a third thing. Number three, Jesus came first in meekness. Jesus came first in meekness. You know, Jesus' journey into Jerusalem that day, it wasn't only a fulfillment of prophecy, but it was a little glimpse, a little sneak peek into his kingdom and what he wants his citizens to be like. You see, everything Jesus did on that day, it spoke of royalty. You know, why would I say that? Well, first of all, when he came into Jerusalem, he rode on an unbroken beast, an unbroken animal, never been ridden on, never been sat on before. And in the Old Testament era, important people and important events required unbroken, unyoked animals. And Jesus was able to tame this animal. Second, the disciples placed their cloaks on the donkey so that Jesus could have a saddle. And the people, they placed their cloaks on the ground before Jesus. So, so like a king, he could have a smooth road in front of him. This is what they did for kings, laying down their garments on their path. And they demonstrate the excitement of the population, at least at that moment. Third, the crowds they cut down leafy branches and also laid them on the road. John tells us that, the, that many of these branches were from palm trees. They laid them out before Jesus. All this pointed to the coming of King Jesus. So he came like a king. But he also, in this moment, came unlike a king. I want you to think for a second about the original readers of Mark's gospel. More than likely, they were citizens of the city of Rome. When their kings and their generals returned from war, they often rode in chariots and on war horses. The whole victory parade in the Roman way of doing things was a massive affair. Soldiers and weapons were on full display. Swords were held high, and the spoils of victory were everywhere. They even had artists that would depict through paintings and models the cities that had been vanquished far, far away. Incense would burn, rose petals would be thrown, even exotic animals like lions and tigers would be taken along in the procession. Also, 
in the years right before this event, the years before the Old and New Testament, Israel went through a season where they were suppressed by foreign powers. Sometimes they would resist. And one resistance movement that was famous was led by a man named Simon Maccabeus. And he won some extraordinary victories for Israel. And one time when he returned from victory to Jerusalem, his entrance into the city was very similar to this event. It's like the people were hoping that Jesus would drive out the Roman suppressors just like the Maccabeans had driven out the foreign powers of their day a little over 100 years before this event. Also, contrast Jesus' coming with the time in history when Muhammad came into Mecca. He came with war horses and thousands of warriors and swords. His coming was one of war. Those who resisted his coming were either killed or enslaved. And his new religious and political reign began with that kind of violence. But Jesus did not come like Simon Maccabeus or Muhammad or Roman generals. He did not come with swords or warriors. He didn't come as a conquering general. He came with 12 disciples who had no clue what was going on. The crowds did not lay down swords or carry swords, but leafy branches. He didn't ride a war horse, but a young donkey. This is all in contrast, of course, with the second coming of Christ. When he does come again to this very same Mount of Olives, he will ride a war horse. He will come with a sword. His return will be visible, just like his departure. But his first coming was one of meekness. One day the power will be demonstrated from Jesus, but his first coming was not at all what people were expecting. You know, in heaven, John had a vision of the throne room of God. There was an angel there who said, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, speaking of Jesus. And when John turned, he saw not a lion, but a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's Jesus, the lion who is meek and gentle and humble. This is the nature of the first coming of Christ. Look, Jesus told us, church, to follow his lead. Consider the first three Beatitudes. They are very unpopular in our modern time. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We live in a society and world that is infatuated with pushing and bullying their way to get what they want. But Jesus said, that is not the tenor of my kingdom or my people. And he displayed that in his first coming. All right, let's look at one last thing about Jesus. Number four, Jesus brought better salvation. Jesus brought better salvation. Okay, as Jesus was going into the city, the people cried out to to him. They used a word, they said, Hosanna. And then they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of of the kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. 
Now, in the Old Testament, there were times that people approached the king and asked him to save. You know, save me. Save me right now. I'm in desperation. Save now. And that's what the word Hosanna means. It means save now. These people were longing for deliverance. They were longing for salvation. Save now. And, they, and what they wanted is very clear. They wanted salvation that coincided with the coming kingdom of David. This was an exciting moment for them. They knew that Jesus was special. They wanted Jesus to drive out the Romans. Now, John tells us that though this crowd was very excited, they didn't really know about Jesus. They didn't really believe in the true Jesus. They were just excited in a political fervor at that moment. The son of David, they thought, had come. So save us right now. Get us out of this Roman occupation. And their songs directed at Jesus, well, they actually angered the religious leaders. You know, Mark doesn't mention this, but the other gospels tell us that the Pharisees actually confronted Jesus about the crowd's words. They said, Jesus, you know, the crowd, they're singing to you. They're singing from Psalm 118 to you, to you. This isn't right. You've got to silence these people. And of course, Jesus famously responded by saying to them, I tell you, if the people were silent, even the stones would cry out. But Jesus heard their cries, and he headed straight for the temple, the courts of the temple. The son of David, they're singing to him, save now. He goes straight for the heart of Judaism, the seat of Israel. The crowds must have been so excited by this development. He's going straight for the jugular, straight for the temple. What's he going to do there? Is he going to call down fire? Is he going to drive out the Romans? What is he going to do in our sacred space in the temple courts? Is he going to rally a revolt? What will he do? Instead, Jesus appeared to do nothing. It says in verse 11 that he looked around at everything, he saw the business that was happening there. He saw the busyness of that temple precinct. Then it says in verse 11, because it was already late, he left. He departed for another night in the city of Bethany. I don't think I can communicate enough how anticlimactic this was for the people. It was such a bummer. They're so excited. They have great fervor and zeal. And Jesus just goes, looks around at everything. The long-awaited Messiah, the son of David, the Christ, just looks around at everything. And then he just leaves. It's like maybe he's not the guy we thought he was. But Jesus most definitely heard their cries for salvation he heard when they said hosanna but he decided to answer their cry for salvation with a deeper better and truer salvation we know this he came not to deliver his people from rome but to deliver his people from sin and Jesus, though there were palm trees and a donkey and clothes laid out before him, though he came looking like he was coming with peace, he did actually come for war. He came to destroy the power of Satan, to destroy the power of sin. 
He might not have come for visible and tangible war, but Jerusalem would be a place that he collided with the powers of darkness. On the cross, he raged against a force that was stronger and more ever-present than gravity itself, the reign of sin. And through his death and resurrection, he won a better salvation, the best salvation that could ever be won. And in the weeks to come, as we journey through this important section of the Gospel of Mark, we will discover the war that Jesus waged in this Passion Week and be reminded of the glorious salvation that he won and the kingdom that he brought. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we pray and ask that we might be a people who represent you and your kingdom well. And if you are watching this teaching today and you don't yet know Jesus, I want you to know that he died on the cross for your sin, to take away your shame, your guilt, your embarrassment, and to make you part of the family of God. And what he offers to you is free and secure in him. And all you must do is trust him to wash away your sin. Believe in what he did upon that cross. You could pray something like this, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sin. I believe in him and that sacrifice, the price that he paid for my life. Come into my life now and make me new and help me, God, to live my life devoted completely to you. 